The world's most advanced color correction tool for Mac just got more powerful. DaVinci Resolve from Blackmagic Design. With XML import, export, multi-layered timelines, curve grading, noise reduction, stabilization, 3D alignment, OpenCL, and more. DaVinci Resolve is available from $995. Current users can download the updates for free. And try DaVinci Resolve Lite, a reduced featured version that's still packed with power. Visit www.blackmagicdesign.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. In this episode, we have Steve Cohen. And Steve's early work also involved working with Avid in its early days, in the late 80s, early 90s. So we're going to look at the montage, which he worked with, as well as the Avid system in the early days on Lost in Yonkers. After the interview, join myself and Lauren for some NAB updates. Before we get into the interview, one thing to remember, check out The Cutting Room on iTunes. Make sure to vote for us. We have a very specific icon. It's a little guillotine. Don't go for the other Cutting Room. There's two other Cutting Rooms podcasts now, and one of them's for bicyclists, which makes no sense to me. But who knows, maybe there's a cutting room for bicyclists. You can email us, let us know. Go there, rate us on iTunes, and make sure to go to our friends that post shows iTunes account and vote for them. Give them a rating, talk about them. But in the meantime, enjoy my interview with Steve Cohen. So can you tell me how you got your start in film editing? Sure. I was a student in college. I was very interested in the movie business, and I didn't know what else to do with myself. And I was lucky enough, my mother's sister was a script supervisor in New York, and she was able to introduce me to a lot of people. So in the, in the summer after college, I found a very cheap place to live and talked to everyone I could talk to and sort of waited for a door to open somewhere and ended up as a messenger boy, bicycle messenger for a company that cut commercials in Manhattan and um, moved up the ranks there very quickly. And eventually that company moved to the West Coast and I came out with them. So it was a very strange thing. You know, I, I had a BA from Yale and then uh, was um, pushing a bicycle around carrying film cans and then came to Los Angeles and um, soon got laid off here was on the street here, but by that time I was in the union here, and so I was able to get another apprentice job here. I had already been cutting in the commercial company, but then I, I had to go back down to the bottom again and do another apprenticeship here, because they didn't really acknowledge that movies were actually being made in New York. It was something else, something unimportant, whatever it was <laughs> they were doing. <laughs> something other. Yeah. So you got to watch the transition from film to digital. Oh, yeah. So you were there for that evolution into the editing software. And I was wondering, what did you notice about the interactive structure or the change that came to the software? And how do you think that has changed editing? So how do you think the software has affected the editors? Well, it's it's almost impossible to, to add, you know, to sum it up in a, in a couple of sentences. Um, yes, I was there at the beginning and I was one of the first people to use nonlinear editing software, and I was a great proponent of it back in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, I come, I have a science background, and I had, by that time, I had written some software. I had an early Commodore 64, and I was writing some pretty sophisticated stuff for that platform, which 
admittedly is sort of ridiculous now, but you know, you, you had to, you had 64K of RAM. So you had to be very smart how you, you know, because you, you could fill it up very easily. Mm-hmm. So I had that experience and I had been using computers before almost anyone I knew. And, you know, I always have loved the craft of editing and the, the almost arts and crafts nature of it. But I also was very conscious of how primitive it was and how much, you know, we were basically a moviola, which is the editing machine I like the most, was is, is sort of a glorified sewing machine. And the equipment is, it was very effective for what it had to do, but it's very primitive as well. And I was always kind of a secret inventor and had these notebooks of invention since I was like 10 years old. One of my hobbies was to try to imagine how we could make the equipment more effective. And so I started using the original Montage, which was a tape-based nonlinear system, and then ended up working for Montage Limited, helping them develop their digital platform, and then eventually went to work uh, consulting for Avid and became the first user of an Avid for a studio feature film and became very active in that, you know, in that community and suggested a lot of ideas to the Avid people because I was one of the earliest users. And the, the film software was, uh, was something that was very actively developed, sometimes with the engineers sitting in my cutting room. Wow. Yeah. So can you, because unfortunately Montage is no longer with us. Um, yeah. Can you explain how the Montage system worked for those listening? Oh yeah, this is this is uh, almost as entertaining as, as the, <laughs> the movieola itself. What you would do is you would capture your dailies, which were shot on film, because that was the only way we could do it. Mm-hmm. and Or not the only way, but it was the primary way for us. And you capture them onto Betamax, that is consumer beta tape, half-inch tape. And then you made uh, 17 copies, identical copies, which went into 17 separate consumer decks. And the machine was essentially sort of a sequencer. And it you, you entered your, we'll talk about the user interface in a second, but you, using that interface, you cut the film. And then the system played you your cuts by playing each cut from a separate deck. So you could essentially play 17 events. And then the deck that had finished playing its event would rewind and play you the next event. So in theory, if the events were long enough and the rewind distances weren't too great, you could play a much longer sequence. Worst case, you played 17 cuts. And it was this giant behemoth. You know, it took up the space of, uh, you know, like three refrigerators. Wow. And the user interface was also equally sort of inventive because there were no bitmap displays when it began. Mm-hmm. So no, no graphical user interface, no mouse, no nothing. And so we had a series of little two-inch or three-inch black and white monitors designed to show you the beginning and the end of, I believe, seven events, something on that order. And then there was a, a screen that you used and also these big handles. So it was a custom interface that was completely designed for this. You had these big knobs that allowed you to go a frame at a time or a cut at a time mm-hmm. and big buttons and stuff like that. It was all custom made and kind of fun to use for its day. I mean, nobody would ever want to use it again, but <laughs> given, given the limitations yeah. of technology, it was pretty inventive. 
Now, I'm assuming with that, you know, with 17 decks going, would you require a lot of assistance to keep the cutting room moving? No, because you could get, I can't remember how many hours of material were on one of those tapes, but maybe it was eight hours It might or six hours. We did it at the slowest recording speed. So the quality was lousy. Yeah. So once you had everything captured and loaded, then you would work in that multi-hour segment of dailies. And then, yes, somebody would have to go into the the, the machine was in another room because it was fairly noisy and you went into the other room, changed all the tapes and then went back to work. But you didn't you didn't need a lot of assistance to make that work. How did montage come to an end? Do you know how they... I don't know the business story. Um, they, they worked on a digital prototype. They had it. I used, along with one other show, I was the only user of the montage digital hybrid. The machine I was using was the Montage 2, but the hybrid was the 2H. And it had an 18th drive, which was a hard disk-based quote-unquote drive, but treated by the software as if it was another drive. But that other drive had instant access to anything you wanted. So you essentially worked off the one drive using the same interface to get to it. And it was more or less a testing application for the engineers at Montage. I did cut a show with that, which was quite an adventure with, you know, exposed full height SCSI hard drives and exposed ribbon cable and, you know, seven drives that you were plugging in and out. Not in cases, right? Just the drive. And the drives weighed, I don't know, 10 pounds each, five to 10 pounds each. Yeah, I still have a couple. You, as you'd mentioned earlier, you cut the first feature film for Avid for the studios. Yeah. Could you give me a sense of your cutting process on this early film, uh, Lost in Yonkers, and some of the background of how that came to be and why why you were cutting this first feature there? Yeah. Well, I worked, um, I had begun working with a director named Martha Coolidge, and Martha was very eager to try new technology, and I used the 2H with her, a Showtime picture called Crazy in Love with Holly Hunter. And although we had, you know, our fair share of problems, given that the software was in such early stages, she completely saw the, you know, what it could be as I did. And so she was very supportive of using whatever I thought was the next best thing. And I had also cut a show with an early avid called Teamster Boss with Brian Dennehy. That was an HBO show. And we had used an early, I believe that was Media Composer 3, the original version 3, which was before they had film software. Once we finished with um, Teamster Boss, I went back to work with Martha. And by that time, Avid had begun to think seriously about a 24-frame system. And I had also understood the grave limitations of doing 24-frame film editing with 30-frame video editing software, which presents all kinds of very challenging problems. And for a real feature film where we wanted to be able to project film and and to make changes and project film repeatedly, the software had to be, it had to be a one-to-one relationship between the frames on film and the frames that you were cutting. You couldn't be guessing at to, as to what frame you had actually cut, which is the way the 30-frame systems work. So we had this very um, sort of very exciting conversation with the original Avid engineers about what it would mean to work at 24 frames, essentially virtual film. And from that, they committed to providing the software that I was going to need 
to conform conform film properly. And that meant that software didn't exist when we started. The goal was that what's now called FilmScribe, which was originally part of the what I would call the, the film composer, that didn't exist when we started. But by the 10th or 12th week when we needed it, it did. So now in, in this early stage, there must have been, because they're literally building it as you guys are are doing this film. Yep. So was this one of the instances where you had the engineers with you? Yeah. So we had, we sort of spec'd that software and I was very instrumental in specifying what it had to do and how it had to look and what the terminology was going to be and what kinds of things it would be able to interpret and how, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what we now call a change list, mm-hmm. or what we then call the change list, which says that you take two sequences, compare them, and come up with a recipe for how you get from one to the other. And the need for this is based on the idea that we had a film print of everything. The film print was conformed so that we could screen our show. And then we had to be able to say, okay, now we've made a whole bunch of changes. We have to be able to conform it again. And we don't want to take this apart. We just want to get from version one to version two. So that means we have to lengthen this shot, shorten that shot, delete this shot, move this shot from here to there, et cetera. And the change list gave you a recipe. So you can go from the beginning of the reel to the end. And this is what you do. And if you just follow it slavishly, you will. when you're done, you will have the new version. That was the very mundane but very powerful fulcrum that allowed us to have film editing in the virtual domain. Wow. And and yet go to a screening room and screen our movie and preview our movie and see it on the big screen. Now we now, you know we now do this very differently, but at the time that was the best we could do and it was a pretty great thing to be able to do it. Well, it's amazing to think how far we've come just in the last 10 years let alone the last 20 Mm -hmm. i mean the first time i cut on a media composer i was practically looking at blocks right because it was so pixelated yes Uh, and now it's amazing you're watching hd and it's phenomenal well we've gotten much better compression Mm -hmm. and we've gotten much more uh high you know hard drive capacity has driven this whole thing so you know i just bought a two terabyte USB 3 drive for $115 that go, can go in my pocket. That's crazy. Pretty good, you know? But if, if if hard drives are driving this, then what do you think is going to happen with, with the cloud? Because essentially that removes the hard drive from us and puts it up in the space. Do you think hard drive prices will go up or? Well, no, I doubt that. I mean, that it's a platter and it's how, how small of an area on that platter can you write a unambiguous you know one or zero two but i the cloud is the next big thing and it's a it it will be interesting to see how this shakes out you know you need a lot of bandwidth yeah and you need a lot of security and those are i'm not sure we're quite there with either one but Mm -hmm. that's that's the theory well especially with the security for i mean if i'm working on a feature and i have to send it to Universal. I can't just throw it up online, right? It's got to be 100% secure. And you and you don't want to make uh, all of your dailies available exactly to, to to the nearest hacker from China, right? Yeah. That was my interview with Steve, and with me now is someone who hasn't been here in two months. Please join me in welcoming Lauren. Hi. So we have lots of news. I'm going to be going to NAB or NAB, however you prefer to call it, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to be working the booths a bit. Working the strip? Working the strip. Um, making sure 
<laughs> making sure things get out, as well as keeping information for you guys. You know, recording podcasts and what have you. If you really want to meet up with Gord in Vegas, uh, stay at a at a cheap motel <laughs> off the strip and walk to the convention center. Anywhere with me. that you can go where you will end up having a really sad breakfast and sad little. Well, the lunches. crazy thing is, is my schedule's packed there, except for Thursday morning. So far, has nothing. Uh-huh. I leave Thursday afternoon, and Thursday morning has nothing right now. And Wednesday night looks like it's going to be open. So if you're going to be at NAB and you want to grab breakfast with me on Thursday, let me know. Done deal. Send me an email, info at aotg.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing is we've had a lot of people send us praise and comments on Twitter and in the iTunes store. So I just thought I would send out some thanks uh, to Eric Brodeur. Eric. Yes, of course. My man. Uh, to Jesse Averna. And Jesse, he's cutting Sesame Street right now. Oh, yes. Uh, Eric, by the way, on our Google group, our Google Plus group, posted his latest commercial that he's cut. And he also worked as an assistant on the sessions, mm, which was mm-hmm. nominated for an Oscar. There was one or two other shoutouts on Twitter, and when I went to go grab them for this recording, mm. uh, the date was before the Oscars that the shoutouts came out, mm-hmm. and I couldn't go that far back in my timeline. Mm. So, unfortunately, whoever it was, I'm sorry. But thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, on iTunes, we have, and I'm only going to have to assume this, and I'm really sorry if I make a mistake. I'm assuming it's an amalgamation of the name Ben and Editor. So it's Benditor. 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 So he on iTunes said that listening to this makes him want to run out and edit. Oh, good. So I think that's fantastic. I have a little secret. What? Often easier to run inside to edit. Yes. So yes, it's true. He can just probably stay where, where he is. But if you have to leave your house and go to your cutting room. This is true. Yes. So thanks for all your... Oh, and there was, uh, <laughs> there was one that was crazy nickname here. <laughs> that was the name on. Oh. <laughs> and it said we were very consistent. So well, thank you. Well, there's that. That's yes. good. Thank you. Now, the other thing... Uh, there's plans for Europe, mm-hmm. AOTG in Europe. We're going to be going to London. Uh, then we're hoping, we're hoping, fingers crossed, to get over to Paris and Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So right now, London is, it turns out is, well, we already knew this, but even knowing it, it exceeded what I expected. It's a very expensive city. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's uh, just looking for a hotel near some of the things I'm going to. We got up there pretty quickly. So... If you know of a reasonably priced place, let me know. Mm-hmm. Info at AOTG.com mm-hmm. or on Twitter <laughs> at Art Guillotine. We're also looking to s- set up a pub night in London. Mm-hmm. So if you're in London, keep an eye out for that. And maybe send some pub suggestions. And send some, definitely send some pub suggestions. Near, where are you wanting it to be near? Uh, the Doby Theatre. Okay. So now... Two other things I want to get out before we wrap up this podcast, Lauren. This month, uh, Noise Industries is giving away some prizes on AOTG. Mm-hmm. So to the top post on AOTG this month, they get a prize. So the you most mean the voted, top poster? Yeah, the person who posts the top article. Ah, the top voted post? Yeah, so voted as well as uh, shared and clicked on. So that's all taken into account. Cool. So if and you... And that's for March? That's just for this month, so you got to get it out So soon. until the end of March. Yes. So 
if you're uh, wanting to get some free plugins, yeah, you do uh, it, all do you have it. to do is find a cool article and uh, share it with us. And how can they share that? They can go to aotg.com and log in or create an account and just fill out a form. Awesome. <laughs> the other thing is we do have the plugins ready to go. Uh, we're just finishing. There's one or two testers left. Plugins for what? Uh, for browsers so that people can submit content without even having to show up to the site. Awesome. So if they land on a website... It's they like an extension or something. Yeah. So if you land on a website, you click a button and it comes to us. That's cool. So, Lauren. Yeah. I think it's time we wrap up. I'd like to thank Steve. I'd also like to uh, remind you that part two is going to be out in a week. And we're going to discuss his book as well as some of his cutting work. I'd like to thank Lauren for helping me produce this episode. Work out. I'd like to thank Lauren Burkell for helping me produce this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening. Bye.